Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Hey, good evening, everybody. My name is Nathan Smith. I lead the Greenhouse. That's the children's ministry here. I'm also a teacher, uh, and I'm excited to start teaching you tonight. So I'm just going to jump straight into it. So uh, I'm currently a high school teacher. I've literally taught every grade. Um, But there's an activity that I do the first day of school every single year. Every single year I do the same activity, and uh, no matter what school I'm in, and I've been in the roughest schools in Orlando, no matter what school I'm in, when I'm done with this activity, um, I have the students for the entire year. I don't have discipline problems in my class. And it's not because of any superpower on my part. I mean, there's skill, there's talent, there's years of experience. But even more than that, though, if you can get the kids to lock into this philosophy, then they go, oh, okay, I get it. I understand who I am. I understand who you are, Mr. Smith. We're good to go. So this is what it looks like. And this is, this is exactly what I'm going to do tomorrow. Tomorrow's the first day of school. So I draw a circle up here. And then I'm going to try to do it. Oh, I already don't like it. But I'm going to try to do it symmetrical. And basically what I explain to the students, the way I start off is I say, what is the number one thing that you want from my class this year? What is the number one thing that you want from me this year? And just raise your hand. Anybody who was here for the earlier service, don't spoil it. Um, Go ahead and raise your hand. Pretend you're a high school student. What is the number one thing you want from my class this year? You can say anything. Be a high schooler. Get into character. Yes, ma'am. To learn something. Okay, she's that nerdy kid with all the books, and they they bring all their supplies in. I love those kids, though. Okay, so what I would do is I would actually write that down. Learn. Anyone else? What is the number one thing? No tests. Love it. Thank you. And that's exactly what I would do. What I will do tomorrow, I write it down. No tests. And then eventually, sometimes they get it, sometimes they don't. I say, okay, do you want to know what it is? And they're like, yeah, they're totally amped up. They want to know what it is. And I go, you're not going to like this at first, but once I explain it, you're going to understand it. Here's the word. The word is safety. You want to be safe this year. And there's always a groan like, oh, that's what you're talking about. You're such a teacher. This is so lame. But then I explain it and I show them this diagram here. So I say, okay, so this is me. I have positional power. I'm your teacher, your parents, society have put me in this position of authority. And this is you students. And as you can see, to the best of my ability, I've lined you up evenly. Now, what's inevitably going to happen, not the first couple days of school because they all pretend to be angels then, what's inevitably going to happen is there's going to be one student who tries to take power over other students. And what that's going to look like is there's going to be a student who, this is how I depict it, but there's going to be a student who looks at another student, and it's not necessarily like uh, what you would normally expect, but it's looking at another student just uh, across the way or across, like, you know, across the table and saying, you ugly. Okay, and just, I mean, it happens. And so they say this, and if nothing happens, then what they're trying to do is they're trying to position themselves above the other students in my class. They're trying to get a hierarchy, and it happens in every single class. Students, all of us, people, um, we try to position ourselves power-wise above other people. And what I explain to my students is that it's my job as the person in authority to make sure that certain people don't try to take power over you if that makes sense. And so my job when this student does this is to step in and say, "Um, excuse me, we don't treat each other that way. We're going to respect each other in this class. Uh, Whatever I need to say in that moment. And I think one of the things I want to point out with this diagram before I move any further is that a lot of times people in positions of power or authority, they believe that this role is stationary. 
but I don't believe it's stationary. So when, let's say that this, position, or this situation happens, or let's say there's conflict between these two students, a lot of times what teachers will do is they will bark, and they will say, hey, don't do that. But what they don't realize is that there's underlying tension and drama there. What I do that's a little bit different than a lot of teachers, or actually all great teachers do this, is I don't just keep my stationary position of power, I actually move down between the students. It could be something very, very serious, or it could be something very, very, very silly and stupid. But I still go down into the situation because if you sweat the small stuff, they'll know that you look at the details, and they'll know, man, even the details, we can't get past them. And so at that point, I step in, and I'm going to go ahead and bridge this real quick. I'm not going to talk about this in the sermon just yet, but I'm going I'm to go ahead and say it now just so I can close some loose ends. This is what God does for us. This is what Jesus has done for us. Jesus is in this position of authority, but he did not choose to stay in that stationary position of authority, but instead what he decided to do was he decided to come down and get into our mess. He decided to get into the details of our life so that if we are willing to sit with him, if we are willing to listen to him, he can create a position where we're in position, of, or for us, where we're in positions of equality. Actually, Annie's dad, um, it's a core component of his life philosophy is this idea of authority and dependency. Um, and so authority, dependency. And what I like to tell my students is that it's not that you guys are always going to be equal all year because everybody has different gifts, different talents, different abilities. But what you're able to do, rather than taking power, you are able to give power. So this student is able to say, hey, I really love the way you do this. Can you take this leadership role in the classroom? And then the class is inviting those other students into that position. Nobody has to take power. It's, it, and it comes down to safety. Again, that's the key word for me. And what I've discovered is that when students feel safe, they can be themselves. From day one, there's a level of vulnerability that is allowed in my class that most teachers, they try to achieve the entire school year. And it all comes down to whether I can maintain this environment. And inevitably, this is the last thing I'm going to say on this topic, inevitably, what's going to happen tomorrow, or not tomorrow, but next week, there's going to be one student in the class, and he's going to go, okay, guys, all right, I'm going in, I'm going in, okay, here we go, you ready? All right, I'm going in. And what the student does is he goes, bam. And this student, he or she, they try to flex on me. They try to flex on me, the teacher. And everybody in the class is watching because what I do in that moment will determine the rest of the school year. Next week, and it will be next week, not this week, they're angels this week. Next week, that student will attempt it, and if that student is successful, if I blow up and I make a big deal out of it and I dehumanize them, then they go, man, we got this guy for the rest of the year and I've lost my class. But if this student tries it, and I gently, kindly guide him back to his position or her position, then this student goes, ah, oh, I don't have to fight for positioning here. I don't, I don't have to fight the teacher. I can just, I can be my normal, dorky self. That's the thing about most bullies that I've discovered. Most bullies in school, they're dorks, like they're nerds. But they just have so much hurt inside that they want to hurt other people. But when you crack that hard shell, there's nothing on the inside but gooeyness. They're amazing. And so once you kind of not put them in their place, but once, uh, and actually, the way I, I'm totally getting off track. Sorry, tech team. Um, but what I like to think of it as is my job as a teacher is not to put students in their place. But if Jesus is truly seated at the right hand of God, my job is to put students in their place. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. And so that's, that's kind of my philosophy as a teacher. So I'm not going to dehumanize a student to bring them down below me because I am not afraid to go to their level. 
I'm not afraid to let them see me sweat. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Oh, okay, thank you. I was like, oh gosh, I totally missed the mark. All right, I'm going to skip this, and let's go to our first slide. The things we think will bring us more life often bring us more death. The things we think will kill us often fill us with life. And one of my favorite short stories is The Velt by Ray Bradbury. He's one of my favorite authors. And in The Velt, this family, they uh, live in a house that does everything for them. The house cooks for them. It cleans for them. Um, when their kids go to sleep, it rocks their kids to sleep. When they're feeling anxiety, like all of us feel, it rocks them to sleep, the parents. And so the house does all the maintenance for them. Gosh, I'm just going to do my own thing tonight. All right, so uh, the next thing I want to talk to you about, it's, it's a... It's a I guess you could call it a theory that I developed, but I want, I want to pitch it to you. I want to see what you think. Uh, come and talk to me afterwards if you're interested or if you think it's just bogus, but I'm going to write three words up here, and the first word is progress. I believe that these are the three modes that we as human beings operate out of at all times. So the first word is progress, and I'm going to represent that by an arrow moving forward. The second word is maintenance, and the third word is rest. I believe, and I'm going to draw a straight line with just a dot stopping right there in the middle. Oh, excuse me, math. That's a point, not a dot. So, um, so these are the three modes that we operate out of, out of all times. And I'll just go ahead and show you my hand. My hand in life, and this is not a good thing. I'm, I'm going to say a lot of things as if it's good things, but it's not. My hand in life, what I, where I am stuck currently, is I'm a person who constantly lives in the future part of being an Enneagram 7, but even beyond that, I, I am always looking forward. I, I'm always looking at that next vision, and so I'm always moving into progress. And my next door neighbors hate it because my grass in my yard, it just, it just keeps growing. It rains, especially this season. It just keeps growing and keeps growing. And my perspective is, I'm doing awesome things. I'm changing the world. You guys can keep cutting your grass, and I'll get to it when I feel like it, but one day, you're going to keep cutting your grass, and I'm going to be somewhere else doing something awesome. Like, that's, that's kind of my internal, natural preset for the way I view the world. But that's not really entirely how life works, is it? I've learned over time, the hard way in many cases, that I also need maintenance. Without maintenance, you can't have true progress. It's not like it exists on a spectrum where you have progress over here and maintenance, which is just the evil thing that everybody wants you to do. You have to do dishes. You have to take out the trash. You have to do your work. That's, they're not polar opposites. So maintenance actually helps. Oh, shoot, there goes the podcast. <laughs> Hello, podcast people. You are now back. All right. So maintenance actually helps with the progress. And then the last one is rest. And my wife and I, uh, what we've done is we have taken our entire lives. I mean, please pray for her because she has to deal with me. Uh, We've taken our entire lives, and, and we sat down a couple months ago, and we broke them down into these three categories. All right, so for us personally, what does progress look like? For us personally, what does maintenance look like? And then for us personally, what does rest look like? And the fascinating thing is that for rest, every single item, whether it's our kitchen, like our long-term goals for our kitchen or our careers or whatever it is, rest is simply trusting Jesus. Rest is simply trusting the process. Rest isn't this big, complicated thing. I mean, sleep is involved in rest, but rest is kind of stationary for us Christians. Rest is, is that point on that line. And um, so anyway, getting back to my notes, 
Um, some people, they seek progress so they can live a life of purpose and leave a legacy. There are people in this world who they do not care about maintenance. All they care about is just moving forward because they want to live a life of purpose. They want a legacy. There are other people, like the person in the, in the parable that re, we're going to read tonight, other people, they seek a life of rest without responsibility. They seek a life of rest without responsibility with no more need for progress. And these people, their dreams, and this is kind of what the American dream pitches to us, this is even better than being a king. This is even better than being a president. Because the president, a king, whatever leader it is, that comes with a massive load of responsibility. Pastor comes with an incredible load of responsibility, doesn't it? But if you have rest without responsibility, you are living the life. You are, you are kind of doing your thing, and you don't have to really be bothered by anyone else. And so, um, oh, uh, oh, and uh, so, and it also depends on, this is just a side note, but for those of you who are looking for a job or want a better job, um, if the best one of these for you is this middle one, uh, but I'm going to add one more word to it, which I can't write in that direction. The word is skilled. Um, if you can do skilled maintenance, uh, I'm talking to you like my students, I'm sorry. But if you can do skilled maintenance in this world, um, you're going to make tons of money. If you can run people's computer systems, if you can fix people's cars, uh, maintenance is how the world works. Uh, we look up to the visionaries, we look up to the people who are making progress, and we go, oh, I really want to be that person. But it's completely impossible without the people who do maintenance. And this is, this is one of the kind of the things I want you to think about with this particular mode of thinking. So let's take Thomas Jefferson, for example. Thomas Jefferson, we look at him as a genius, and in many senses he was. The way he was able to think of political philosophy and theory at such a young age, the things he was able to write, the ways that he was able to lead us, we say, oh my goodness, he was a genius. Like, what a brilliant mind that we lost when he passed away. But what I want to pitch to you is Thomas Jefferson was able to live a life of pure progress because he was a rich, white man. Thomas Jefferson, his entire life, from the time he was born, he had black slaves doing his maintenance, cooking, cleaning, whatever it required. He had other people doing his maintenance so that he could achieve that level of progress. And the reason that I bring this up is I want to make it very, very clear, especially for those of us in this room, that we're kind of buying the lie that our life is all about progress. If you're buying that lie, you have to realize that there's a certain point where progress hurts people, where you want to reach an end goal, like we'll see in this parable, where you want to reach an end goal, and that end goal is going to require you viewing human beings as property. I can't get this done without people and these people need to obey me in order to get this done. In order to live this life of rest without responsibility, I, in order for me to lay back, I need to have other people to do my maintenance for me. Now, I'm not saying Thomas Jefferson wasn't a genius. I'm not taking away from what he did. I'm just saying that if you apply this model to different situations, and it doesn't matter who it is, you have to ask, or you don't even have to ask, you just have to say there's a lot of gray area here when you look at this. All right, so let's, let's apply this to our parable today. Um, and so our parable starts in Luke 12, 13 through 15. Oh my gosh, I got 20 minutes. I'm feeling good about that 20 minutes. All right, so Luke 20, 12, 13 through 15. And uh, let's go ahead and give me that slide. 12, 13 through 15. There we go. All right, fantastic. 
Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man. No, he didn't say man. Jesus replied, Man. No. Who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And we can't just fly by this and get into the parable because this is kind of the situation that prompts the parable. And uh, so what the, can we actually keep this up just because I'm ADHD and, and I will lose myself if I don't have it. Thank you so much. Um, so what this man is, and again, this is what I do in my free time. If you guys have been over to my house, you've seen my glass door. I just draw circles all day, but they mean things. I'm a person who I I'm, I'm, have like an eight wing, a very, very strong eight wing. And my eight wing, uh, I'm able to walk into a room, and it works out really well for me as a teacher. I'm able to walk into a classroom, and I'm instantly able to assess the power structures in a room. I can walk into a room, and I can, in a classroom, I can find my queen bee, and I can t find my top dog in about two minutes. And then from there, I can break down the power structure, and I can just ooh, bring that level of equality. I just love it. I just love it. But anyway, I'm going to draw some more circles. So these circles here, uh, this is what's happening in this situation. So you've got this guy, and his brother is in a power situation over him. He has the money. He has the inheritance. And so this guy, he says, next slide, please. This guy, he says, he, oh, actually, I'm going to say this slide. People often appeal to greater authority to escape from a lesser authority. Watch what he's going to do. So this guy, rather than dealing with this situation with his brother, what this guy says is this guy says, Jesus, I'm going to go to you, the teacher, and if you tell me thy brother should split thine inheritance with you, I'm then going to go to my brother and I'm going to say, I talked to somebody in a position of authority, just like parents, like kids and parents. I'm going to somebody in a position of authority and he told me that you need to divide it with me and that's the Lord, so you need to do it. But Jesus' response to that is very, very interesting. Jesus' response is no, I'm not going to do it. And that's because this is how this man is viewing the world. It's all up and down. But Jesus is saying, you've got it all wrong, my friend. You want me to be right here. I want to be right here. Does that make sense? You want me, you want to use me in this position of power, but I'm actually right beside you this entire time. And that's what God desires. So many times we go to God and we want to use him, but God says, I want to just be with you. I just want to be with you. It, it, this guy's so caught up in money, this is what he wants, that he can't see that he's dealing with the creator of the universe. All right, so moving on. Yes. All right. Where, where am I at? Oh, I'll just say this. So, um, Leah, next slide, please. Jesus did not, uh, sorry, the Jesus one. There we go. Jesus did not come to help us escape earthly authority, nor did he choose to supersede it. Instead, he came to challenge us to exist under it and wrestle within it for our own personal and spiritual growth and purification. Jesus didn't come so that he could just rescue us from all earthly power. There's something that he wants to teach us through that. And, uh, and think about it with a job, all right? So everybody who buys a lottery ticket, you know, the first thing that they do is what? Well, yeah, they pick numbers. Sorry. They win. So they, they, they get a lottery ticket. They win. And then what's the first thing they do? They quit their job. That's right. They say, bye-bye. I'll see you later. You have no authority over me anymore. I'm going to do what I want. I have independence. That's the first thing that they do. 
And there's something about us that we long for authority, but then when we get that level of independence, we have no problem leaving it. And it's like my son. So my son, Jay, he, when he is hurt, when he is struggling, when he needs love and affection, he will come to me and he will, you know, I can wrap him in my arms and he'll just melt my arms. But then there are other times, like this morning, where I'm trying to put his clothes on and get ready for church, and he runs off just in his, un- was he? yeah, he was in his underwear. He, sorry, future Jay, for putting this in a podcast. He runs off in, into his bedroom, and so I go in, you know, I'm following him. I, I did the countdown, that didn't work, so I'm following him to, into his bedroom. And I just want you to envision this. So there's his, his bedroom door outlined in black because it's dark in his bedroom. I'm making my way back to his bedroom, and then all of a sudden, a Transformers bumblebee dinosaur toy launches out of his bedroom door, boom, And I'm down for like a minute solid. I mean, it is, fellas, you know what I'm talking about. I'm down for a minute solid. And my son in his bedroom, I already know what's going through his head. In his head, what he's saying is, oh my gosh, I'm dead. Like, I am so dead right now. And this is one of the challenges that we have as human beings, as people who were former children, is that we have a really hard time with father and mother figures and finding affection with them because a lot of times, it's th- those are the people that we're supposed to run to, but what about when those are the people who hurt us? What about when those are the people who do the damage? So we, they're hurting us, and we long to run to them, but we don't have them anymore. And that creates this sense of separation, this sense of abandonment, that eventually, if I do read this parable, that the, uh, the guy in the parable is going to start feeling. And so the reason I bring this up is that, um, why did I bring that up? I don't know, but let's move on to the parable. All right. So, um, oh, and I do want to say with my son, uh, so one of the things that you have to do uh, is you have to kind of catch kids off guard in that situation. And Jesus does something really beautiful in those moments. So my son, I mean, honestly, like my first initial feeling when he hurt me this morning is, is I was just, it was anger. I was frustrated. But then I collected myself, and I went into his bedroom, and he was actually curled up on the other side of his couch in his bedroom. And I went over, and I just picked him up, and I held him. And at first, he didn't want to say sorry, so I just held him. I held him as long as I needed to hold him. And then I just felt him relax, comforted. And then he said, Daddy, I'm sorry. And I said, oh, it's all right. And I put him down. And I, this is one of those things that I don't care if I get off topic. This is one of those things where, that I've discovered. I grew up in a household where I was spanked. Now, raise your hand if you were spanked as a kid. Yeah. And so my wife, when I married her, just like a lot of things, she said, absolutely not. Like, we're not spanking our kids. And I was like, oh, okay, I guess I can do this. As a teacher, I, I teach every day, and I don't spank kids, and I get kids to do what I want. So I'll try this with parenting. What I've discovered is that it's one of the most creative things I've ever had to do, is to, uh, to not use physical force to get what I want. And one of the mistakes that we make as people is we say that the, the opposite of force is love. The opposite of force is not love. The opposite of force is choice. So you can choose to do it or you can be forced to do it. And when we say that the opposite of force is love, we say that we are essentially saying that love can't use force. That's not true. Love can absolutely, God's saying, don't put limits on my love. I can use force if I need to. Now, in my relationship with my son, I don't use physical force, but in every aspect of our lives, there's force that's present. There's pressure that's present. And, um, and it's the same way with God. It's the same way with God for us. Like God, there are times that he really wants to, uh, that's, too the, that's too theological, I'm not getting into that. 
So I know, I know to stay in my lane. All right, so let's go ahead to, um, let's, let's read this parable. Can we move on to, oh wait, am I skipping a slide? Oh shoot, can we go, are we going to Hebrews next? Okay, let's do it. All right, so um, moving on to Hebrews, um, thinking of God in his fatherly role. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone who accepts him as a son. He accepts as a son. Here's the, words I, the four words I want you to get. Endure hardship as discipline. Endure, endure, hard, I'm from southern Ohio. Hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? Is there more? Yeah. They discipline us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Let's go ahead and move on to the next slide. Into the, um, uh, Jesus is not promised to help us overcome complex, challenging, and pain-filled lives. He promises to be with us. He desires that we endure hardship as discipline. A lot of times in the church, uh, we use the word overcome, and I think sometimes we use that as, as a synonym of escape. Um, but Jesus doesn't necessarily want us, he, he doesn't give us the opportunity to overcome the difficult things in our life. He says that he's there with us. He, as we endure that hardship, he's, he's teaching us. He's alongside of us. All right, let's move into this parable. So, um, so we have this introduction where this guy, he wants Jesus, he, he's greedy. He wants Jesus to just step into the situation. Jesus says, I want nothing to do with it. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. Very strong language. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Now it's very easy for people to take a political philosophy behind this and say, see, he was selfish. He wanted to build more storehouses instead of giving that money to the poor. But did it say that, did it say that? No, it didn't. It said, this is how it will be for whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not, didn't say rich toward other people, it said rich toward God. And that's a theme that's consistent in Jesus' parables. He wants this man to be rich toward God. If it was about rich men giving away all their possessions, uh, Zacchaeus would have said, I'm going to give away half of my possessions. And Jesus would have said, it's not good enough, Zacchaeus. That's only half. You're very rich. Give them all away. But he didn't say that because he was looking at Zacchaeus' heart. And in this case, this man, the reason we view him as greedy, the reason we view him as a person who's chasing after possessions is that he finds his identity in those things, and he's, he's rich, but he's not rich toward God. That's his problem. All right. Uh, let's see where I'm at. Um. Let's move on to Psalms, the Psalms. 
All right, um, and I'm going to try to piece all these things together. Uh, I usually teach a 52-minute period at my school, so 35 minutes is, is a stretch for me, but I'm going to try. Um, and I'm, just, I'm a reading teacher, so I'm going to just I'm gonna read it nice and slow, and we'll see how this goes. Psalm 37 says, Do not fret because of those who are evil or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. There are many of us in this room who were tempted when we see someone who's rich, especially when we see somebody who's a rich fool. We look at them and we say, they're rich and they're foolish. Man, I could do so much better than them. I could do so much better. I'm going to strive to do something where they didn't do it. But this says, don't fret. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will do this. He will make your righteous rewards shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes, as they build wealth, wealth, wealth. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It only leads to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. You could also translate that as inherit the earth. A little while, and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the land. Sound familiar? And enjoy peace and prosperity. The wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at them. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he knows their day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend the bow to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose ways are upright. But their swords will pierce their own hearts, and their bows will be broken. Better the little that the righteous have than the wealth of many wicked. Let me say that again. Better the little that us righteous have than the wealth of many wicked. For the power of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The blameless spend their days under the Lord's care, and their inheritance will endure forever. We see that word inheritance again. The blameless spend their days under the Lord's care, and their inheritance will endure forever. In times of disaster, they will not wither. In days of famine, they will enjoy plenty. But the wicked will perish. Though the Lord's enemies are like the flowers of the field, they will be consumed. They will go up in smoke. The wicked borrow and do not repay, but the righteous give generously. Those the Lord blesses will inherit the land, inherit the earth, but those he curses will be destroyed. The Lord makes firm the steps of those who delight in him. Though he may stumble, he will not fall, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. I was young and now I am old, yet I have seen, never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. They are always generous and lend freely. Their children will be a blessing. Turn from evil and do good, then you will dwell in the land forever. For the Lord loves the just and will not forsake his faithful one. Wrongdoers will be completely destroyed, the offspring of the wicked will perish, the righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. The mouths of the righteous utter wisdom and their tongues speak what is just. The law of the Lord is in their hearts, their feet do not slip. The wicked lie in wait for the righteous, intent on putting them to death, but the Lord will not leave them in the power of the wicked or let them be condemned when brought to trial. This is, again, this is going back to that Hebrews verse. This is why I brought it in here. They, they will, God wants us to endure hardship as discipline. God is not going to leave us. And the reason I'm reading this psalm is that I want you to, I mean, I have no idea exactly what inspired Jesus to create this story. But as we'll see on, a, on the slide here in just a second, Jesus was a living embodiment of the Psalms and the Proverbs. So he, took, he had the Psalms and the Proverbs, and he evolved them. He took them, their core elements, and he evolved them through storytelling. And what we see here, we see a lot of the key themes that Jesus was speaking about in this parable reflected in this psalm. Parables of Jesus, yep, there it is. They remind us that righteousness comes only through submission to the Father. Is it possible to go back to that uh, very long uh, 
part in, uh, where's the, uh, next slide, please. Next slide. There's one other thing I wanted to touch on here. Oh, it's all right. It's all right. I think that's good. All right. And we can go ahead and move to our next slide. All right. So one of the things that I, that I feel inspired to say tonight is that for those of you in this room, and, and it, this is in my heart as well, that you see other people succeeding, you see other people doing great things, you see other people progressing in life, what the American dream tells us is that we can also achieve that too. We can also play by that game and play by those rules. And what I want to tell you tonight is that Jesus left this off, or God left this with a question in this parable. God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And my answer to that question, based on Psalm 37, is we will. The righteous inherit the earth. So this man, he's saved up, he's rich, he's got all this different stuff, but at the end of his life, he's going to have to meet his maker. He's going to die, and he's going to have to stand under the ultimate authority. And when it comes down to it, at the end of days, the future is ours. We, the meek, the righteous, the peacemakers, we will inherit the earth. No matter which fools run it now, and I'm not talking about any fools in particular, just anyone in authority that you may say, that person can't do their job right. No matter who runs it now, no matter who controls the wealth, we are wealthy in Jesus. We will inherit the earth. Now, that does not mean, and you guys know my life, that does not mean that you should not fight for justice. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't stand up against powers that abuse people. When you see authority uh, acting in ways that, where there's corruption and all sorts of different things, fight, 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 fight it. But what I'm saying is that we can take rest and comfort in the fact that it's already ours. We will inherit it. So these riches, these things that these other people are pursuing, when they die, they will not have them. When we die, we will. All right, so I'm going to close uh, by saying that God is a great parent, and he's a parent that um, it may feel like he's inflicting the hurt, but he's actually not. He's, he's the parent that we can run to and find comfort in, and we can, in the midst of all the hardship that we're going through in life, he designed this life so that we would run to him and we would find our comfort in him. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.